A seismic shift has taken place in the world of work. Diversity and inclusion are no longer simply nice to have. These concepts are front and centre of how we do business. I'm Rachel Wilson, MD of diversity consultancy EW Group, and I'm excited to welcome you aboard season four of the Reworked podcast. Join me in conversation with the leading thinkers and doers on diversity as we unpick the fabric of working culture to discover how inclusion can become the golden thread that runs throughout all aspects of business. Babita Sharma, welcome to the Reworked podcast. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to have a, have a chat to you today. I'm just going to... Uh, give a little introduction to you, if I may, uh, before we get cracking. So you are a news anchor where you, at, at the BBC, where you've been for 10 years working across global news, different programmes. Um, you grew up in Reading, I believe, and uh, in 20, uh, 2017, uh, you, your programme uh, was aired on the BBC. A, a little bit about your, we want to find out more about this, about, about your upbringing, um, growing up um, the daughter of shopkeepers in Reading. Yep. And that was followed by a book in uh, 2019. And I, uh, on the same subject, and I know you've got more plans in that direction. So broadcaster, author, um, I'm very excited to, to have this chat with you uh, today about diversity and inclusion uh, in, in the context of your career. I, I, I haven't interviewed any broadcasters before, so I'm prepared to, there may be a few more questions bouncing in my direction as well. <laughs> but, uh, more pressure then, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. Can we start with a, a little bit of a sort of orientation about your own career journey? Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I'm just going to say that I've been at the BBC longer than 10 years, in fact. I've been oh. at uh, World News as a news anchor for 10 years, but before that I was a producer. And my BBC career, God, I'm showing my age now, but it's been at least 20 years um, on and off within the institution that is the good old BBC. But I began my broadcasting career, um, I did a degree in journalism at Cardiff University. Um, I actually wanted to do an acting degree, but my mum and dad were having absolutely none of it. <laughs> Stereotypical Indian parents, they wanted a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant out of me and my sisters. We're three girls. They didn't get that. They got a landscape garden designer, um, a rehabilitation officer for prison services, um, and a journalist. Um, but yeah, so journalism, film, and broadcasting looked like an interesting subject to choose at university. So I kind of went for that, not really knowing what I was going into. And after I graduated, I um, returned back to Reading really despondent about my great student life being over and being jobless and what I was going to do with myself. Um, and then I started volunteer volunteering at local radio stations, um, not really with my journalism hat on, but more kind of just knocking on the doors of local radio stations to finding out if they needed any help, um, kind of more work experience, really. And then I got the opportunity to move to the Middle East, as you do, completely randomly, uh, to work as a DJ um with a radio and tv station out there and it sounds really cool but actually i wasn't a cool dj i was playing love songs for the masses of the united arab emirates but um it was great because aside from anything else it was an incredible life skill in terms of growing up and learning a bit more about myself as a 20 something year old in a foreign country mm. and then i came back to the uk after a few years out there pretty much partying and having a great time um, and still not sure about my career direction. And that's when I joined local radio, which was BBC Radio Berkshire. 
Um, and that began my broadcasting career. I didn't really know what I was going into, but I was really struggling with job applications at the time. And um, somebody said to me, you know, you're a Reading girl, there's BBC Radio Berkshire. Why don't you just go and see what they're up to? They didn't have any jobs, but I offered to make the cups of tea and just hang around. And that led on to my first fixed term contract, which I remember it so well, it was six weeks. Um, and I was doing traffic and travel reports on the BBC. Um, and that was my real first taste of being in a newsroom, um, albeit a smaller one than the one I got used to much years, many years on from that, but it was infection. It was the adrenaline, it was the people, they were fantastic. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe I found somewhere that I think I could make a difference and, and belong. And, and that kind of started my career. And then from there, I spent a few years doing regional broadcasting. So BBC Radio Berkshire and on to BBC South Today in Southampton. I then became a shoot edit. So this was all kind of off camera, learning production and editorial skills, camera skills in the Channel Islands for BBC Jersey. Wow. And um, yeah, I'm really grateful for that time because I just really learned my skill set then as a young journalist. That sounds like a thorough grounding. It was, and I just, I, I really learned about the craft of making TV, mm. being in news, gathering news stories, interviewing skills, meeting people. Um, the skills you don't really get on a course when you're sat in a, you know, a lecture theatre. It was on, it was on the job experience um, and you just can't beat that. And mm. I'm, yeah, I mean, anybody going into broadcasting now, I'd highly recommend looking at, more independent regional newsrooms or production companies because you really can hone your craft there. Yeah, um, yeah. And then I became a producer in London and then started doing bits of presenting for what was then called BBC News 24, before it became the news channel that we know it to be now. And I spent five, six, seven years producing other presenters like John Sobal, Louise Minchin, Emily Maitlis, Ben Brown, Hugh Edwards, Fiona Bruce. And Again, that was an incredible experience because I was in London, I was doing breaking news, live news reporting, but I was in the production side of things. So I was kind of calling the shots in terms of big breaking news events and where we should go and what we should do and what we should say to the other presenters. Um, and then when I eventually did become a presenter for BBC World News, it meant that I kind of had off-camera skills that were helping me to understand really how I could translate that into being on camera. Um, mm. So yeah, I joined BBC World News in 2010 and became um, a full-time presenter for BBC News. So yes, yeah. that was the transition. Wow, wow. As um, it, it's a, it's very interesting to hear all the steps that you took to to get to where you are. I and mean, it's you know it's it's that's quite a long that's a long journey, isn't it? To get to you obviously in a really um, senior newsroom role now, public facing, public profile. Um, it's not a, it's, you don't just become an overnight news No, writer. I mean, some, some people do, but I, you know, I think most of us that are... Hard graft. Yeah, it is hard graft, but also it got to a stage, and I remember Carrie Gracie, who's a colleague of mine, an incredible woman, um, works at the BBC, worked at the BBC. Um, she, I produced her and we became very good friends also because we live not that far from each other. And, you know, before I took up the full-time presenter role for BBC World News I knew I was really good at doing the production side of things I knew I was really good as an output gallery producer but I also knew that I wanted to know what it would be like to present and she said to me you're at a crossroads now Babita and you need to make a decision about which way you want to go because I think 
you'll make a success of either one, but you need to really make a decision because at the moment you're kind of doing a bit of everything. Mm. You really need to kind of specialize, have a specialism uh, and go for it. And that advice was was really key. And that became a turning point in my career because I thought, you know what, I'm just going to chuck everything in a present, presenting basket and see how we go. And for me, it's always been about timing and opportunities. And the timing was right because a, a job came up in world news. Um, and, you know, had I made the transition maybe five years before, I, just, I wouldn't have got that gig. But it was all about waiting for an opportunity um, and I didn't do that consciously it just kind of happened really mm. in terms of the opportunity aligning with me having career advice about you know really think about what I want to do I mean, um, it, that, that mentor figure that, that you had you know, obviously quite pivotal in, in making that decision um, yeah I mean that's that's important isn't it for, for people coming up through the through the ranks in any career is to have somebody giving them a giving them that insight, giving them the wisdom, helping them make, maybe frame their career and make decisions. Completely. And I think, you know, giving a leg up as well mm. is really important. And in presenter land, it can be quite um, competitive. There's a lot of sharp elbows there. Mm. There's lots of people kind of looking behind their shoulder, thinking about who's coming to take their job. Um, and I was privy to that kind of atmosphere because I was a producer of a lot of those presenters beforehand. So, you know, there were, there were, it's fair to say that there were some people that thought, oh, she's got um, a few aspirations, maybe above her station. She's producing, but she wants to do other things. And, and they weren't necessarily as um, encouraging of the next step that I was willing to take. But having a mentor and a voice like that and other peers around me that were saying, you know what, go for it. Without kind of being judgmental or, or jealous, I think is really important, especially in a cutthroat news environment, which mm. can be, like I said, very competitive. Mm. So um, this this goes some way to to um, answering my question, actually, which was um, so we met my next question. So we met uh, at the BBC when EW Group was doing some work um, with the diversity team to set up a mentoring program for black, Asian, minority, ethnic staff to help them get that leg up. <laughs> That you're talking about and you were one of the mentors so that yeah. that goes some way to probably explaining why why you wanted to take on that mentor role yourself and help other other individuals in the organization yeah when was that we sort of met it I think it was a while ago now probably I think about 2016 around that time I think we're going before that actually mm. I think it may even have been 2013 okay gosh yeah, yeah. Um, but you know I think for me, I realized as soon as I became a presenter more so when I was producing that um, people needed advice. And the reaching out for advice often goes along the lines of somebody that they feel has done a success in their career when they reach sort of high profile position of some kind. Mm. Um, and I felt like I had a responsibility to kind of help. And that's where the mentoring scheme came in and Thankfully, it did come in because I think there's a gap there. Uh, you know, you can have a chat with a mate or somebody you work with, but you've got to almost make that a bit more meaningful so it can have a constructive journey and you can kind of catch up with them um, in a more meaningful way regularly as opposed to being just a chat by a coffee machine and then you forget about that person's dilemma about career advice and then it goes away again and then comes mm. back maybe a few years later. So having a mentor scheme meant that you were kind of touching in without touching base with that person 
regularly. And I think that's that's what I valued with my journey through broadcasting. And I was kind of hoping to do the same for other people. Yeah, yeah. So this feeling of uh, wanting to give a little bit back, um, does that come out of, for you, a feeling of any pressure associated with being an Asian woman, a public facing person on the on the television? Um, you know, you, does does that... Is that something you feel daily or how does that play out for you? I think you can ask that question of anybody irrelevant of their gender and their background when they are in the public figure, uh, when they are in the you know, mm. public space. I think there is a responsibility that comes with being a, a BBC News presenter. Of course there is. Um, but I think more so now than ever before, we are... And I say we, uh, people that represent diverse groups that are on screen, are still in the minority. And therefore, I think more than ever, there is um, it, there is an importance to be placed on being part of mentoring schemes. You know, I, I want to be able to talk about my experiences within broadcasting to help other people coming through, because I, like I said, it's still the minority of us. But anybody coming into this organization taking up a presenter role it is pressurized there is a level of responsibility that comes with it regardless of where you're from but you know i have a friend um steph mcgovern who is a broadcaster and she has talked a lot about socioeconomic background and, and class being an issue herself being a geordie lass um and i think you know hats off to her for having that conversation because mm. you know there are so many different layers of what makes a broadcaster tick beyond what you see on camera. So yes, you look at me and I'm a British Indian woman of a certain age. Um, and then you kind of look at my educational background and you think, okay, tick, 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 tick this is how she's got there. But there are so many more different levels to that. Um, you know, maybe people didn't know I had as much production experience as I had. Maybe just people didn't realize that I didn't have this burning ambition to be a journalist. Mm. Um, you know. It, I think we have to look beyond what you see as the obvious nowadays. Absolutely, yeah. You say it's, there's, uh, there's so many interdependencies going on for all of us um, that, ha that have to be factored in and into our experience. I think, I think there's a, a, a I think there's a danger for organisations when they're setting up an initiative like like the uh, the mentoring program that we're talking about, where potentially the responsibility. For progressing diversity and bringing about inclusion, sit will sit with you know the more diverse members of of the organisation. It shouldn't be like that, should it? You know, this isn't your responsibility alone to to fix some of these career progression problems for for, for people in an organisation, for example, or to fix anything else in society. Um, it has to be a collective conversation, which is why I think so many companies have got it wrong over the years, and they've gone through cycles of you know diversity. We call it diversity and inclusion now, don't we? But you know, diversity mm. remits of how they are going to increase BAME or LGBTQ staff at their organization, but they haven't quite been able to do it because they haven't had a collective universal conversation. Mm. So, yes, of course, you have to engage all members of, of an organization, including those from a diverse background, but you are more richer for getting the perspective of a diverse workforce in commercial terms as well um, by getting everybody on board on the conversation. Otherwise, what's the point? Mm, absolutely. 
And while we're on the subject of, of diversity, we're in um, we're recording this in the week of Harry and Meghan's um, interview with Oprah. Um, there have been a number of diversity moments in the last yeah in the last week or two alone. Um, I'm conscious this is going to air in in April, where who knows what the landscape may have changed again. Um, it just it strikes me that public consciousness of diversity and, and related topics is just when you think it's at its height, it, it kind of gets ramped up another notch or two. Um, wh- how do you see this 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 unfolding in, in the public's you know, consciousness? You obviously work for the BBC, a very public facing organization. Um, how do you see this unfolding in, in this year? It's really interesting you use the word like it reached its height because I kind of think that um, we haven't even touched the surface. Mm. You know, and I think that's what that's what we're getting at at the moment. That's where the conversation is. Like we are scratching, kind of getting the first layer and digging beneath and going and going and going and going. And the only way we can keep going is when every corner and every dark space and every uncomfortable conversation is put out there in the open that we are able to say, okay, we can have this conversation about diversity and inclusion openly, transparently, effectively, and it's going to be one of change. You know, you talk about Harry and Meghan interview that has had an incredible response. Um, for me, it's been quite toxic on social media. I posted about that. I find the whole conversation very polarizing. It's mm. become sort of them and us, which I really dislike. Mm. Um, I find, you know, conversations that have, I mean, every hour actually, <laughs> Of every day, there is something to do with race. A colleague of mine, Naga Minchetti, did an incredible documentary on the BBC, Let's Talk About Race. If you saw it, it's uncomfortable viewing, but mm. must, a must-see broadcast. Um, but, you know, when I think about the BBC and its part in this whole conversation, it's taken years to make that documentary. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean years to actually make it, produce it. I mean, why has that documentary not been out before? Mm. Um, we have talked about race in other ways, but I mean, right now, I think the momentum is there to have a warts and all conversation about it. My only concern is what we do with all that information and where it goes, because, you know, I think everybody's, I'd like to think everybody's intention, particularly organizations, big and small, are now realizing that they need to think um, in a very open and diverse way to include or to represent what society is today Mm. but thinking about that and putting you know an application form together with a box on it that says where are you from and we're actively seeking people from a BAME background blah 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 all well and good but what happens when these people come into your organization that might have been previously a very white landscape what happens in terms of retention for those people in an organization I mean for me I think we have a long way to go but I think we're in probably a better place right now than we have ever been because of these huge high profile interviews Mm. because of these huge scandalous episodes because of black lives matter movement um i just hope the momentum becomes more than a momentum Mm. and we're talking about concrete change um and solid foundations of which to work from yeah it's it's a really it's a difficult one. Like I said, social media for me can be very toxic at times when we mm. have these conversations mm. because people can often hide behind 
um, the platform and air some really uncomfortable views without actually coming into a really open forum to discuss why they might hold particular views about something. Mm. It, it does, it does. And I'm, I'm wondering about your, um, when you made your programme, um, The Corner Shop. Uh, I would like to talk about that, that for a moment, if, if we can. Um, I was wondering, well, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about it, first of all, and sort of how it, how it came about. And um, it, 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 But then moving on, it is, it is about, in part, I think, about the intersection between class and ethnicity and, uh, all, as we've said, all these intersecting um, elements of diversity. So I'm wondering yeah. what the response what you what the response was that you received, for example, on social media about the program and yeah, that kind well, of thing. I never thing. thought where I grew up would be a place of interest to people, naively. Um, you know, I grew up above a corner shop in Cavisham in Reading, and um it was an incredibly fascinating, unique, arduous, challenging childhood. Um and one when my mum and dad grafted non-stop 24 hours a day. Um, but, you know, being a corner shop kid um, afforded me the opportunity to look at people and places in a way that you wouldn't get anywhere else. You've got all sorts of people walking into your front mm. living room, I used to call it. Um, <laughs> I would literally peer behind the counter and mum was serving customers, just watching all sorts of people. Um, I'd know about their political leanings by the papers that they brought. I'd know if they had a drinking problem, if the same person was coming in very early in the morning to late at night, all of that. Um, and it was fascinating. And I began to realize as I got a bit older and working within the media industry that there was an incredible story here to tell because everybody knows their local corner shop. Mm. Most people know their kind of shopkeeper, um, but there was more to it than just this kind of usually immigrant family running this kind of not so very glamorous space at the end of the road. Um, and again, it was about unpicking those layers and kind of, for me, I wanted to kind of work out why so many Indians were having corner shops because I wanted to understand why my mum and dad became atypical of a particular group of people that had them in the 1980s. Mm. And that then led me into investigating more about my childhood home. But it also allowed me to understand that there isn't some kind of link, inherent link between, you know, migrant Indian families and the corner shop. Actually, it's just about a set of circumstances. Mm. And um, I wrote a pitch that I wanted to look at the corner shop from 1940s Britain to the current day. So we're looking at, you know, how the corner shop was a very white man in overalls, post-war Britain, kind of ration books, right through to mass immigration to this country and the Indian shopkeeper, right through to the Polish shopkeeper and where we are today. Um, and I pitched the story to the BBC and they said no. I pitched it again and they said no. I pitched it again and then they said no. And then eventually about four or five years of pitching, they said yes. And when I say the BBC, I'm talking about lots of different corners mm. of the BBC. So I went to the news department, I went to BBC Three, I went to BBC Two, I went to BBC One, um, and it eventually ended up on BBC Four. And I'm so glad it did because it was the perfect house for it. Um, and the programme was, you know, just dream come true for me. I was able to kind of celebrate my childhood home, but also do a kind of real social history analysis of this humble institution um, and celebrate it, but also go up and down the country interviewing shopkeepers like my mum and dad mm. um, and also not like mum and mum and dad and kind of find out what it is about this place that people kind of take to their hearts. Mm. And what resulted was, you know, an hour documentary that went out on BBC Four um, and then consequently led to a TED talk that I did about the corner shop and immigration. 
it then also led to a, a conversation to answer your question about the reaction to it um, about people's own experiences with corner shops um, and that was really lovely because I suddenly realized that oh well so people kind of did get my childhood home and they kind of did understand or they kind of did sort of ref- recognize the other little boys and girls that lived in their corner shops that might have been a little bebita kind of there <laughs> yeah. as well um but also you know they, they acknowledge the whole graft of it and how difficult it is to run a shop like that you know when you're 5 a.m in the morning to 11 o'clock at night sometimes 24 hours a day so i was incredibly pleased with the reception that it received um and as you said what i found was so rewarding about it is that universally it has an appeal that unites a demographic group that unites social classes across the UK. So it didn't matter where you were from, if you're from Belfast or Cornwall or Glasgow or Burnley, everyone had a corner shop story mm. to tell. And that's why I think, you know, to this day, years later, I'm still kind of working with the corner shop in some way or shape or form in a different kind of media landscape. So I did the documentary. I then consequently was asked to write a book, which was brilliant because I was using my own voice to tell a story that was very personal but also meant that I was able to kind of remove the shackles of the BBC and and just write as an author which was lovely Mm. Um, and now as I speak to you in 2021 um, I'm about to embark on a children's picture book series how exciting it's very exciting and it's all going to be about a little girl who's solving mysteries in her which is a bit of a detective solving mysteries in her shop so yeah it feels it feels lovely and I think the reason why there are legs to this story if you like is because of its universal appeal yeah I mean how how amazing it must be to feel that I don't know it's like a full circle experience isn't it coming back to the corner shop where you started your you know where you were as a child and I don't suppose you could have ever envisaged when you set out on a broadcasting career that you would be so much of your work now would be about home and yeah and again I mean absolutely I never would have thought that anyone would be interesting or that I'm writing about it or talking about it presenting about it but I think I said this earlier it's all about timing and the documentary as frustrated as I was I pitched it it never came out before and it took five years to make Mm. um the landscape was a very different one to have a call, to have a conversation about immigration, to have have a conversation about diversity, I think that the documentary aired at the most opportune time to celebrate diversity and to really look at it through a different lens, um, and people were ready to understand a perspective. Yeah, you know, I find that slightly disheartening in the sense that we're having this conversation. Well, that documentary came out in twenty sixteen. Uh, so recently but you know as you know all too well that the conversation around diversity changes um and perhaps the audience may not have been a celebratory of it had it been 10 years earlier Mm, mm. I don't know I mean maybe maybe not but it feels like the timing was everything for that yeah it'd be great to do a revisit though now I'm just thinking after the last 12 months where most communities have been limited probably to uh, the only thing open will be a corner shop uh, for a lot of people um, yeah and I did an article for the i magazine about this because corner shopkeeper I mean the, the shopkeeper was having 
I was going to say well over time that is not true at all but their businesses are doing brilliantly in lockdown because that's where everybody's going to they've got no yeah. other places unless you want to queue up for an hour at a major supermarket you're going down to the local shop um but that you know warrants a whole conversation about um people putting themselves on the front line and it's usually people from uh, mm. a minority background so I think there's more to the figures that you hear that there's a correlation between COVID-19 deaths and people from a BAME background. Mm. There's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, and I think, you know, we have to remember that those people are often on the front line, like your taxi drivers or your mm. bus drivers, your train drivers or your short, your corner shop owners. So, um, yeah, absolutely. There's a whole conversation to be had, I think, again, since the pandemic. Definitely. Absolutely. And so from from... Yeah, one set of complex social ingredients to another sort of complex landscape. Children's literature in the UK, you're about to get into this, this sector. It's, okay. it's got its own representation issues um, that have been studied in the past and documented. And what you, what's your oh, take tell on... Tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> Help me on my journey. Yeah, I've... Um... You're not, I'm presuming you're not setting out to write a diversity book in inverted commas um, and you won't want it to be marketed in such a way but how do you oh yeah you just made my skin like I I, like just a diversity book I mean there is a space absolutely for children's uh, literature to embrace a a diversity book but because I am an author from a diverse background who wants to tell a story about a girl in a corner shop solving mysteries um, that doesn't have to be on the nose diversity. Mm. It's about celebrating and representing a diverse character. Um, and that's what I'm really, really excited about. Because, you know, I have a little one. I know you've got little ones as well. <laughs> and when I pick up books to read to Mia, there isn't a lot of diversity there. In fact, I'm probably reading the same books that I've read that were read to me Mm. some age-old classics which Mm. is what they are wonderful but I don't know if she sees herself in a lot of those books so I'm hoping that this will change that um and yeah the landscape I'm I'm just I'm navigating it at the moment it's a new experience for me like I said one I'm incredibly excited about but I think one that when it comes to representation really needs a lot of work to be done um and there's a long way to go because to go because children's literature has predominantly been quite a white space mm. um and you know authors from diverse backgrounds haven't necessarily had the opportunity to um have their works published so hopefully um it will be received well and i can make a bit of a difference i'm sure it will be and i hope i hope the responsibility of that again coming back to the beginning of our conversation doesn't weigh doesn't weigh too heavily on your shoulders um no for me it's a, no for me it's about enjoying the process of writing enjoying the process of collaborating with an illustrator mm. enjoying the process of working with an incredible publishing house to get a fantastic magical wonderful story out there that is the driving force mm. and hopefully that will then lend itself to being representative um, of you know many more characters and diverse characters in that field but for me the overarching priority is to be fun yes i'm, <laughs> I'm sure it will be i'm sure it'll be absolutely fantastic I'm, I'm conscious that we've talked a lot about some we've talked about some really kind of complex issues some 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 challenges which yeah can can weigh us down if we if we 
yeah, can, can be very, very kind of weigh quite heavily on you. But um, what I wanted to ask you about as a kind of closing question, I think, is what your hopes are for this year. We've been through a lot together, you know, collectively, um, globally in the last 12 months. What we're, we're still I still feel we're at the beginning of 2021 here. What 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 are your hopes for this year? Um, freedom. <laughs> and, I, and I say that in lots of different guises I mean I'm hoping that 2021 means that we'll get to a space where we can actually you and I might be able to chat again have a drink yeah. together yeah. Um, we can see people we can see family we can be a bit more free and open with our time um, on a personal level for me it's about coming out of lockdown um, and understanding and appreciating as I have done in the last 12 months what really matters and not losing sight of that when we go mm-hmm. incredibly busy on the treadmill of life again um, but, you know, I say freedom in it, freedom to be who we are and express ourselves authentically. Wouldn't that be lovely to be able to have um, a space to do that and encouragement to do that and to be our best selves? That's what I would love for 2021. I, I do feel what we're in March now. Um, it's been bumpy start to the year. Last year was transformative. This year feels like it's going to be bumpy. Um, and I think it might be like that for the rest of the year before we kind of are able to find our feet in what a post-lockdown world looks like, but also a world where these conversations that we're having about colorism, diversity, inclusion, gender equality, disability rights, um, it all feels very bumpy at the moment. Mm. Do you think, do you feel the same way? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think what you said earlier was really got to the heart of it, really, which was about feeling more comfortable having conversations Mm. um, where we're not polarizing views, but we're just 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 seems to me like we always come back to empathy when we're talking about diversity and inclusion. And really, at at its heart, you have to be able to empathize with with other people who are different to you. and I, I think that's at the centre of being able to have much more positive conversations, hopefully, this year. Um, yeah, and I, I, mean, I think it goes across the board. It goes across the board. There are people from diverse backgrounds that are not necessarily empathising with people that are what categorise as the mainstream group. I don't know. I mean, it, like you said, I think it's empathy goes a long way for everything in life. Yeah. You know, um, and also, you know, I'm a mum of a of a young one, and that's been incredibly challenging and rewarding mm. role that I've taken on. Um, I sort of feel my purpose more so now being a mum than ever before, um, yeah. and I hold that responsibility incredibly. Um, what's the word? It's it's something that I take. It's a very serious, very important responsibility to have. Um, and, you know, I hope for her, for my daughter and for your children as well, that we're able to get to a space where they're, you know, in 10 years time, having an open conversation about all the issues that we're talking about at the moment. Mm. And frightened some kind of yeah. or something. Exactly. Exactly. I, I actually read, a, um, I watched, a, you know, the American performance poet, Amanda Gorman. Who yes. Was, yeah, it was on the inauguration uh, uh yeah, she 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 
she shot to kind of prominence through that um, earlier this year. But she, I was read, I was watching one of her uh, poems that she's performing this morning on Twitter, and there was just a line in it where she said, "Create a future which is free, not flawless." Yeah. Coming back to your point about freedom this year, I think, and conversations, and I just feel like if we could, we don't have to aim for those conversations to be perfect. You don't, you don't. It's better to have a conversation and and learn more about somebody else and to risk not getting it quite right than to not have that conversation at all. Absolutely. And that's for me is kind of what I was getting from that statement of her about yeah, going for freedom, um, not flawless. Yeah, completely. And I think you've summed that up beautifully because it is about freedom of expression, but also respecting another person's point of view, but as long as that point of view is done respectfully, mm. empathetically, um, then I think we can all, you know, really learn from each other. Um, and just being, you know, I think in, in your role as you, as you are for EW Group, there's a, there's a hat you've got to put on. In my role with the BBC, there's a hat I've got to put on. And yes, I understand all of that, but there has to become a point where we are free as individuals to really express ourselves in a way that we are being true to ourselves. And I think that's what I would love mm. for this year. Mm. Mm. Me too. Well, that is a fabulous, positive, optimistic place to leave our conversation. I think we've covered a lot of ground there. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today, Bobita. Thank you so much for inviting me. And listen, keep up the good work. I know our paths crossed many years ago, but um, it's just great to be here chatting with you. And uh, let's just hope that in the next 10 years, we'll be able to spread even more positivity out there, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I look forward to reading the children's book to my daughter when it comes out. So One in the post. Hopefully it won't take as long for you to get off the ground as the TV programme. Let's, let's hope they move a bit faster than, than that yeah. process. Yeah, no, um, I, I have good confidence that we're on, we're on the right track. I suppose it's on you to write it, so better let you exactly. get on. <laughs> yeah, I better get on with it. <laughs> All right, thanks very much. Thank you. I hope this month's episode has brought you new ways of thinking about inclusion at work and ideas for what you might do next in your organisation. Check out the episode description for social media accounts for us and for our guests. We'll be back again next month. This is an independent, advert-free podcast and we rely on your support to keep making these broadcasts. We'd love it if you could subscribe, like and review us. See you next time.